I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I love our residency program. I think our residents are dedicated, they're evidence-based, and they often go above and beyond what they need to do to take care of patients. Well, that's the whole premise of this episode. You see, yesterday, one of our senior residents, Dr. Katie Light, who's fantastic, brought this case to me and said, um, I think we need to talk about this because this doesn't seem right. And she was correct. Here's the premise. This patient who's currently pregnant has a history of oral labial herpes, cold sores, as many people do. And she had serological proof of HSV-1 positivity, but no HSV-2 antibody. And remember, no history of genital herpes. Fine. While her partner, who is the same partner as her previous pregnancy, had no history of HSV-1 antibody, but did have serological evidence of HSV-2 antibody, and he had a history of recurrent genital herpes. Everybody good? Current pregnant patient, she's doing fine, no history of genital herpes at all, just oral cold sore and no HSV-2 antibody. Partner has a history of recurrent genital herpes. Fine. Well, Dr. Light brought this case to me and said, listen, this patient in her immediate past pregnancy, she was given Valtrex to suppress and to prevent herpes infection for her. Everybody good? So pregnant patient, no history of genital recurrent herpes. The partner has HSV genital herpes. And in the past pregnancy, that provider back then gave the patient Valtrex. And she said, "Um, is that right? Well, the answer is no, and it's not right for a variety of reasons, and we're going to discuss that now. So I thought, you know, great topic, HSV discordancy, when to treat, and why do we treat, and where does that even come from, and does that actually prevent neonatal infection? Where's that data? And we're going to go over who does not require Valtrex suppression. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I've had oral labial cold sores before and they hurt, they feel bad, and they look terrible. But if you're like me, you hate them as well. That's just the way it is. I mean, people get cold sores. Well, that's herpes. Herpes simplex virus is a double-stranded DNA virus that can be differentiated just into two types, HSV-1 and HSV-2. This is based on the glycoproteins in their lipid bilayer envelope. Glycoprotein G1 is for HSV-1, and glycoprotein G2, you guessed it, is for HSV-2. Herpes simplex virus type 1 is the primary etiological factor of herpes labialis, that's oral labial herpes, but it's increasing in frequency in causing genital herpes. Now, right now, herpes simplex virus type 2 is almost always a genital pathogen. See the difference? HSV-2 
is typically a genital offender, but HSV-1, while it's likely to be oral labial, can also be genital as well. And over the last really two decades, HSV-1 has been increasing and encroaching on the zone, if you will, of HSV-2 in causing in its prevalence and its incidence in causing genital HSV infection. For diagnosis, ACOG and the CDC say that if there's a clinical suspicion of a herpetic infection and the patient has no past diagnoses, then don't just go by visual inspection because it can be terrible. You've got to confirm that with a swab, typically PCR. PCR testing can distinguish between HSV-1 and HSV-2 infections. These are the patients that can get serological testing to figure out and correlate what type of infection the patient is having. Remember, nobody agrees on universal screening for HSV antibodies. Nobody. The CDC, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, ACOG, SMFM, nobody wants just universal antibody screening. However, antibody or serology testing, when a patient presents with a sore, can help classify what kind of condition, what kind of infection the patient is having. Remember, there's four kinds of clinical presentations. Primary first episode, non-primary first episode, there's recurrence, and then asymptomatic, which we really we shouldn't know because the only way you figure out if somebody's asymptomatic is if you test your antibodies and, oh, by the way, you've got anti-HSV1. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. That's why there's no call for universal screening in pregnancy or not for herpes antibody. That's your first clinical pearl. But back to the other types of clinical presentation. A primary first episode is when the patient has a PCR positive herpes test. In other words, you swab the sore and it's HSV2 and the antibody is still negative. Now remember, it takes a while to build antibody, even IgM. So if the lesion is fresh enough, you're going to get PCR positive results if it's herpes and you're going to catch the window before they actually convert to IgM. So that's their convalescent window. So somebody who has no herpes antibody, but PCR picks up HSV DNA, that's primary first episode. A first episode non-primary is a little different. That's when a patient gets swabbed and finds, for example, HSV2, but the patient does have antibody to the other herpes type. In other words, they have HSV1 antibody already in their system. That's called first episode non-primary meaning somebody has showed it to him before, but this is their first clinical episode, in this case of genital herpes. Everybody good? Primary, first episode, non-primary, first episode. All right? Now, of course, first episode, non-primary, tends to be a lot milder because there is some cross-protection there in the antibody from type 1, in this case, covering type 2. So it tends to be less severe. Recurrence is just what it sounds like. You swab the ulcer and it shows HSV in this case, let's say type 2, and the patient already has IgG antibody in their serum done at the same time of testing for HSV2. And you go, well, wait a minute, I've never knew that I had this. Well, in this case, it's just kind of typical recurrence. And at some point you were exposed, but this is your, uh, your, your symptomatic uh, outbreak, but this is typically called a recurrence. All right. Primary first episode, non-primary first episode, recurrence, and then asymptomatic. 
Here's a clinical pearl. According to ACOG, about 10% of women who are HSV2 seronegative, but who have partners who are seropositive, of course, they're at risk for transmission of HSV2 during the pregnancy. Consistent with non-pregnant patients, most new infections in pregnant patients are asymptomatic. The timing of infection is relatively evenly distributed, with about one-third of women becoming infected in each trimester. So it's not cumulative if you're ever asked, what's the chance of somebody acquiring HSV2 in pregnancy if they're HSV2 seronegative? And the answer is a third per each trimester. So it's a third in the first, a third in the second, and a third in the third trimester. Among women with recurrent genital HSV, about 75% can expect at least one recurrence during pregnancy, and about 14% of patients will have prodromal symptoms or clinical recurrence at time of delivery. Now, don't just ask those patients who have known HSV genital lesions about their symptoms or prodrome. We should be asking all women. Remember, most women who have herpes don't know. So when they come into triage for labor assessment, it's important to say, look, anything else going on down there, any cuts, any sores, and it's one thing we take for granted, right? Typically, she's under the cover. We put on a glove. We do a cervical exam without even visualizing the vulva. I mean, I've seen it done. So again, as a quick clinical pearl, ask all patients who present for anticipated delivery about new ulcerations present at that time that may be previously undiagnosed herpes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's get back to our podcast and focus on this issue of HSV discordancy in pregnancy. Remember, just like HIV discordancy, that's where one partner is HIV infected and the other isn't. Well, HSV discordancy is the same deal. Everybody good? So one partner has HSV, assuming the source partner is not the pregnant person, and then the pregnant patient does not have it. That is HSV discordancy. Ah, so here's the confusion, because that actually is the perfect comparison. In the HIV discordant couple, who takes PrEP? Who takes pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent themselves from acquiring the virus? The person who's not infected. Ideally, the source partner, the person with HIV, is on HIV medication. But the one who's not infected in that discordant couple takes PrEP. Well, I think that's where the confusion was with our pregnant patient example. Remember, in the previous pregnancy, even though the patient had no history of genital herpes, she was placed on Valtrex as prophylaxis, as PrEP in effect, because her partner had it. But that's not how HSV data works. Remember that the HSV data for discordancy is that the source partner should take an antiviral, an antiherpetic medication like valacyclovir or acyclovir to lower their chance of shedding and then transmitting the virus. Do we get that? So PrEP for HSV isn't for the uninfected partner, it's for the partner who's the source infection, the one who has herpes condition. 
The whole concept of a discordant HSV couple taking once daily valacyclovir to reduce transmission is nothing new. That study was published in 2004 in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's the Cori article and is available online. Now, as a quick disclosure, that was in non-pregnant individuals, okay, non-pregnant women. But even in that study cohort, those who actually were considered the vulnerable patients, in other words, those who did not have HSV-2 genital herpes, there was a large amount of patients who did have HSV-1. Why? Because a lot of people have oral labial sores. I mean, they have cold sores. So once again, in the Corey article from 2004, even those who were HSV-2 naive, meaning they were seronegative, they had a large population who did have HSV-1, but no history of genital herpes. All right, so that's the big two big disclosures. Non-pregnant study. Okay, this was not had nothing to do with pregnancy, and it did not exclude those who were HSV-1 proving that even in that population, even though there is some cross-immunity because HSV antibody can help reduce HSV-2, it doesn't eliminate that risk. So there was still benefit for the source partner taking Valtrex to reduce the rate of transmission to the vulnerable person uh, partner, even if they were HSV-1 positive. All right, so everybody follow that for the clinical pearl? Similar to HIV, where in a discordant couple, Medication can be taken to avoid transmission, but in HIV, it's the uninfected partner who takes the medication, who takes PrEP, and in HSV for herpes, it's the source partner who takes it to decrease the viral load, which decreases shedding, which decreases the rate of transmission. Remember, that data is not in the pregnant population. Regarding pregnancy in specific, there's actually no data that treating the source partner for HSV with valacyclovir actually reduces neonatal infection. Now, it follows, it's all inferred, I get that, that if the partner has less shedding, then the patient, the pregnant patient, will have less chance of acquiring it and therefore will be less risk of transmitting because she doesn't have it. But there's actually no study that proves that. So I want to be very clear. There's no data that giving the partner valacyclovir will reduce neonatal transmission. That's jumping one step, right? So we assume it's going to reduce transmission to the pregnant patient, the mother, which would then reduce the chance of neonatal infection. But there's no study that's made those two leaps that's made that connection. That's why I find it very interesting that ACOG, in its most recent Management of Genital Herpes Practice Bulletin, which was released May of 2020, doesn't even talk about suppressive therapy for the discordant couple. Typically, for patients who are discordant for genital herpes, specifically HSV-2, the recommendation is, look, just don't have sex in the third trimester to prevent infecting the patient, the pregnant patient, with genital herpes. Because primary infection in the third trimester actually has your highest risk of transmission. So even if those patients don't have an active lesion at time of delivery, if they've had first episode, first contact with HSV-2 genital in the third trimester, they still require C-section because they have a higher risk of vaginal and cervical shedding. So the recommendation is, look, if your partner has HSV-2 genital and you don't, don't have sex in the third trimester, not even with a condom because a condom is just not that effective. Uh, what? 
Really? I mean, how often is that going to work? I mean, intimacy is just part of a relationship. Now, if they can swing that and not have intercourse in the third trimester, that's great. But for a lot of people, intimacy, again, is a very important part of a relationship. So that's where this gap comes in. So that's where the idea of using Valtrex for the infected partner can help. But I find it interesting that the ACOG practice bulletin doesn't mention that. And the reason it's not in there is because that original Corey article, again, was in a non-pregnant population. It had nothing to do with pregnancy. And we don't have any data, as I've already mentioned, that taking Valtrex from the source partner actually reduces neonatal infection. But it's something to consider. Or you can just go abstinence in the third trimester, which doesn't seem as fun. For women with a primary or non-primary first episode outbreak in that current pregnancy, as well as any woman with a clinical history of genital herpes, they should be offered suppressive therapy starting at 36 weeks until delivery. Acyclovir was the traditional gold standard, but we now know that valacyclovir or Valtrex is just easier to take, and the safety profile has been established as well. So those are the patients that require antiviral suppressive therapy at 36 weeks. For women who are found to be asymptomatic, seropositive HSV2 carriers, in other words, they've got evidence of HSV2 in their body, right? They've got positive antibody, but they've never had an outbreak. I know this is going to make some people uncomfortable, but this is the data, and here's a recommendation from SMFM, quote, there is no evidence that HSV seropositive women without active genital lesions during that pregnancy benefit from suppressive therapy. So offering it is not evidence-based, end quote. Everybody make sense? So if you find out, hey, I'm just going to do antibody screens for herpes on everybody. One, that's not evidence-based. And if you find that they're HSV2 positive and then you give them Valtrex, remember, you're fine, you can do whatever you want to do, but that's not evidence-based either because you only give Valtrex to those who have a history of active symptomatic genital outbreaks either before the pregnancy or during the pregnancy itself. Everybody good? That's why we're not supposed to do asymptomatic serology testing because it doesn't change management. I know that makes people uncomfortable, but that's the data. Oh, hold on. Don't get ready to send me a message. I I can't believe you don't give those women suppression. No, I don't. But I do give them education. This is where we tell them, look, you have herpes antibody type 2. That's almost always genital. Um, but if you've never, ever, you've never had an outbreak, you've got to pay close attention to your vulvar area. I mean, we do patient education. We teach them their anatomy. It's okay to say clitoris and labia minora and labia majora. And we teach them, look, any weird feeling down there, any little cuts, any little ulcers, you got to notify somebody quickly because that could change your pregnancy mode of delivery. And of course, at time of delivery, they have to be uh, evaluated with a good external survey to make sure that you're not missing any sores. But in terms of suppression, suppression at 36 weeks with Valtrex Recyclovir is only for those patients with pre-pregnancy or intra-pregnancy during that pregnancy who have had episodes of recurrent genital herpes outbreaks. Okay, so let's wrap this up. So for HSV discordant couple, it's the source partner who can be offered once daily Valtrex to reduce transmission to the pregnant patient, knowing, of course, that there's no data where that was replicated in pregnancy itself and actually affected or reduced neonatal transmission. Okay, but rather than just saying just don't have sex, and if your partner has a cold sore on his lip, don't have oral sex, 
that's the third trimester long. Um, that's great advice, and I'm all for that. That is good advice. I'm just saying, but if that's going to be difficult, then trying to give the source partner Valtrex to reduce risk for transmission is evidence based. But don't give the patient who is HSV2 negative with no history of genital herpes, don't give them the medication because that's only for PrEP for HIV, not for HSV. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the discordant HSV couple in pregnancy who gets PrEP the source partner, and of course, typical safety precautions of just being careful if the partner has HSV2 and the patient doesn't, always a good idea to try abstinence in the third trimester if you can. And I have to say it again, not that much fun. But anyway, that is a recommendation. (laughs) I hope that helps. Anyway, thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.